It's good to be here today. Uh, it is a blessing to, to be here with our spiritual family, uh, that we can be encouraged, that we can support each other, that we can look to God's word to stir us up and, and strengthen us. Uh, and it is a big encouragement to me to have many visitors with us. We, we are encouraged by your presence. want you to know that, that we value you and, and are thankful for you being here. And we hope that, that we can be an encouragement to you the way that you're an encouragement to us. Today, what I want us to consider, what I want us to think about is not original with me. I can't take full credit for this sermon. Uh, and when I say that, it's not because I you know, took the outline of some other evangelist somewhere or uh, because I, I structured my sermon around some passages of scripture. Uh, in fact, the thoughts that are going to form the outline of our study today come from a letter written by my mother. Uh, so if you want to, you could say that my mother wrote my sermon outline today. About five years ago, uh, my grandmother, who was 91 years old at the time, was baptized into Christ for the remission of her sins. And I now have a hope of seeing my grandmother in heaven in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. For many, many years, my mother had tried to talk with my grandmother uh, uh, about spiritual things, about the scriptures, about the condition of her soul, uh, but it often brought tension in that relationship. And over time, uh, there were periods of, of months and years that it was not brought up. But when my grandmother was 91 years old, my mother decided to write her a letter, uh, just a one-page letter, and it was that letter that led to other studies that resulted and her conversion. And so what I want us to think about today are the thoughts contained in that letter. Uh, they're going to form the outline for our study, and I want to think about reaching the resistant heart. If I were to ask for uh, a raise of hands, or a show of hands, uh, of those among us here who may have a, a living parent who is not in a right relationship with the Lord, or a child who's not in a right relationship with the Lord, or, or a sibling, or an aunt, or an uncle, or a, a close lifelong friend, uh, I'd say most everyone here has somebody in their family, somebody close to them, uh, that has resisted the gospel. Uh, and maybe you have made efforts to talk with them about Jesus, about the salvation that God offers, about the condition of their soul, about a uh, hope of eternity. And yet what often happens is when someone who is resistant to that and tension comes in that relationship, we, we may be tempted to give up. Uh, and what I want us to do today is to renew our hope, to renew our hope that the gospel can touch the hard-hearted, that the gospel can soften hearts. And along with renewing our hope, I want to motivate us to renew our efforts and reaching out to our loved ones around us with the gospel. And I'm not saying that, that if we approach things the right way, that, that everyone is going to respond to the gospel. Certainly, there, there are going to be hard hearts that will not respond to the gospel. But we need to make sure, as much as depends on us, that we are doing everything within our power to reach out to those around us with the gospel. And that's what I want us to encourage, uh, encourage us to think about today. And so I want us to see some biblical principles of how we can touch the hard-hearted. The first thing 
that I want us to consider is that we need to lead with love. In this letter that my mother wrote, and I'm going to be including excerpts from it uh, today, she starts out the letter by saying, I love you enough that I am willing to risk your displeasure by bringing up this topic. And throughout the letter, later on in the letter, she says, it brings tears to my eyes when I think about how much I treasure you. And so uh, throughout this letter, she reaffirms her love and that this love and this care for her mother is what was the driving force, what was the motivation, was the only reason, the sole reason that was motivating her to reach out and talk about this subject again. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 and 6 tells us, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You know, is it loving for a parent to refuse to pull a splinter out of a child's hand because it's going to cause them pain? Is it loving for a doctor to refuse to tell his patient that they have cancer because that news is going to be devastating to them? Many times, love hurts. You know, if, if a surgeon needs to perform some surgery to save the life of a patient, it may leave some long-lasting and deep scars on that individual. And yet, if they refused, uh, then certainly their life would be in peril. And so, love demands that we not turn a blind eye to the spiritual condition of those around us. Love demands that we don't give up, even if bringing up this topic may risk displeasure, may cause tension in that relationship. If love is motivating us and driving us the way that it should, then we're not going to give up. Love cannot keep pretending that nothing's wrong. Love will even lead us to tears on behalf of those whom we care about. And it will drive us to do everything in our power to bring them to the Lord. And not only should it be the motivation, not only should it be the driving force in getting us to reach out to others with the gospel, I, I think we need to make sure that it is something we wear on our shirt sleeve. That it is something that is very evident to them. Because what happens sometimes is we start getting frustrated and we lead with that frustration. And we lead maybe sometimes with, with a pride to show them that, that we're right and they're wrong and they need to change. We need to make sure that that, that is not the message that is being sent. The message that is being sent is... Whether I'm right or I'm wrong, I genuinely believe that your soul is in danger, and I care enough about you to talk to you about it. We need to make sure that that is something that is obvious, that is evident, that is in the forefront as we reach out to those around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, as Paul wrote to those in Corinth about many problems that they were having. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul loved them so much that he was willing to be brought to tears. He said it is an affliction and anguish of heart. Is that how we feel about our loved ones and their spiritual condition? If so, is that the message that they are giving? Is that evident? 
you know, there, there are times where we should be reserved. There are times where we need to hold back our emotions. But rather, when it comes to showing love and how much we value somebody, we need to let that pour out. We need to make it very evident that that is our motivation. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so we need not to be ashamed to express deep and sincere concern for those around us. And that means that our frustration, or whatever it might be, needs to be set aside. We need to make sure that that is not taking the forefront. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We need to make sure that the way that we approach them is filled with gentleness, with humility, with compassion. Colossians 4 and verse 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each one. We need to make sure that the way in which we express our spiritual concern for those around us is seasoned with grace. It's more palatable, easier to swallow. Now, you know, when, when you're seasoning your food, there, there is such a thing as, as too much salt, right? I, I think in the way that we approach people, th there is not such a thing as too much grace. As long as we're not compromising the message, we need to pour on the grace. We need to make sure that the way in which we express these things are as, as gracious as humanly possible. That it is going to be near impossible for them to be offended by the way in which we approach them. Now, if they're offended by the message itself, uh, then there's nothing that we can do about that. But as far as it depends on us, we need to pour on the grace. We need to make the love, the humility, the compassion, the gentleness, the first thing that they notice as we talk to them about their souls. But secondly, we need to make sure that we show them why before we show them how. If you expect loved ones to listen, you have to give them a clear and compelling reason why this is important. Sometimes we start trying to teach someone the gospel with the assumption that they already see the need. And that it's already as important to them as it is to us. Many times we say that the, the most important question that somebody could ask is, what must I do to be saved? But I think there's a more important question, and that is, why do I need to be saved? Why should I give my life to the Lord? Because if we don't understand the why, we're not going to want to know the how. My mother, in her letter said this, she said, since going to heaven is the very most important thing we have to deal with in this world, how can I not approach you, one that I love so dearly, and beg you to study it again carefully? Since going to heaven is the most important thing that we have to deal with in this life, since eternity is more important than this fleeting existence, we need to make sure we make the why very clear. Remember in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches his sermon on the day of Pentecost. In verse 36 and 37, after they are already convicted and pierced to the heart, uh, he says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. But notice that's not where he started. Many times we think that is the gospel. 
You know, what, what you need to do, well, that is the gospel. No. Now, that's our response to the gospel. That's the conclusion to his message. But for many, many verses before that, what was he preaching? He was showing them the why. He was bringing them to the point of conviction where they were pierced to the heart and said, men and brethren, what must we do? We, we need to make sure that in our presenting of the gospel, we're not just telling people how. We're telling them why. We're showing them that, that Jesus is Lord, as Peter did. And so as much as we try to equip ourselves in, in being able to teach people the how, we need to start equipping ourselves from the scriptures and showing people the why. Because the scriptures are not just able to instruct us and inform us. They're able to reprove us, to rebuke us, to convict us, to pierce us to the heart. And so we need to make sure that we present a clear and compelling why so that they understand the importance of these things. And along with that, part of the why is stressing the universal need of salvation. We may say Jesus saves, but Jesus saves means nothing if we don't understand what we're being saved from. Salvation is meaningless if, if we don't recognize a need for deliverance. And so we need to start here. We need to start with understanding sin. My mother in her letter said, Picture, if you will, everyone in the world in one big room. Everyone is there. No matter how good or how bad they have been, Hitler is there. Mother Teresa is there. Everyone from the most vile and the most giving and upright. They are all in the same room. They are all in the same condition. They are all sinners in need of a Savior. This is the why. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Salvation isn't something that just some people need. It's something that all people need. Have you ever heard somebody talking about one of their loved ones and they'll say, well, you know, he's just such a good person, but... He won't come to church. He's such a good person, but, but he's just never given his life to the Lord. I'm sorry, but no, he's not. And no, I'm not. And no, you're not. When we think that we're good people, then we don't need salvation. We're not good people. We are people who have turned our back on the Lord. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Many times we like to measure ourselves by the, the earth's standard of goodness. And on, on the scale of Hitler to Mother Teresa, well, I may be doing pretty good. But that's not God's standard. Notice Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 9 through 12. Here we see the world from God's perspective. What does God say about the world? He says in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Other than our Lord Jesus Christ, none of us 
have fully sought after God. None of us have fully reflected God's goodness. When God created us in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, he created man in his image. We are intended to reflect his character, his holiness, like we talked about today. But Romans 3, verse 23 and 24 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the standard, the glory of God, his character, his image. We have broken that image. We are all broken mirrors of God's image. We're all ruined self-portraits of God's character. We deserve to be thrown out. And here in Romans 3, verse 23, where it says, All have sinned, and we are only justified as a gift by His grace. Think about it this way. It doesn't matter how neat, how hygienic you are. You cannot be clean without the power of soap or some type of cleaning agent. And if you go your entire life without the power of soap, you're probably not going to smell too good. It doesn't matter how good I think I am. Without the blood of Jesus, I cannot be holy. I have turned away from God. I have become filthy. I've become stained with sin, and I need his blood to cleanse me. And if I've gone my entire life without coming in contact with the power of Jesus' blood, then I am in a dire situation. And so we need to make sure that as we approach our loved ones, it's not that we're standing over them in judgment and, and saying, well, you know, you need to get your life together. No, all of us, Mother Teresa included, me included, are sinners in need of a Savior. Because we haven't fully lived up to the image and the character of God. We haven't fully reflected his love. We haven't fully reflected his holiness. We are broken mirrors. But we can't interest someone in salvation until they can clearly see what it is they need to be saved from. And brethren, baptism is not something that good people do. Baptism is something that bad people do to become good. When we think, well, that's just what a good Christian person does. No, no, no that, that's what somebody does to become a good Christian person. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. But as we stress this universal need of salvation, we need to stress and emphasize the singular solution. My mother continues to write, she says, this room has many doors. Lots of pe different people have chosen lots of different doors. I would imagine most of us think we have chosen the right door, the right way to salvation. But there is only one door, one way to salvation. You know, many people may agree that there is a need of salvation. Anybody with an ounce of humility will recognize that they have not lived a sinlessly perfect life. But if we think, well, there are many different solutions, there, there are many different pathways to God, you know, you can have your religion and I have my religion. You have your truth and I have my truth. Then discussing these things is not that important. But if, as the Bible claims, there is one way to salvation, then it is extremely important that we discuss these things. 
Because if you and I are going through different doors, either your soul is in danger or my soul is in danger. Do you think that's something we might need to talk about? The gospel is exclusive. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is only in Jesus' name. It is only through Jesus. There aren't many different doors. There is one door, one way, one pathway to eternal life. And brethren, truth is exclusive. Baptism cannot both be essential and non-essential to salvation. The, the Pope can't both possess divine authority and simply be a, a human ruler purveying the traditions of men. It, it's either true or it's not. And so we need to be willing to uh, discuss these things because there's a singular solution. Matthew 7, if you'll turn there with me. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus here says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. You know, most people think that they are entering the right door, right? Most people think that they have chosen the right solution to salvation. But most people, Jesus tells us, are wrong. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many will go through it. There's a narrow way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. If there is only one narrow way and only few find it, then discussing spiritual things becomes of utmost importance. Because I want to be on that narrow way. I want you to be on that narrow way. God wants you to be on that narrow way. And so, discussing the condition of our souls, discussing spiritual things, dis discussing the message of salvation, uh, is not something that we can just push off. It's something we must give attention to. And so, if discussing spiritual things is of utmost importance, then we need to challenge honest evaluation. My mother wrote in her letter, You are in the same room with me and everyone else in need of our sins being forgiven. I believe you have chosen the wrong door. How can I not approach you, one that I love so dearly, and beg you to study it again carefully? If there is only one door, then at least one of us has chosen the wrong door. And we need to study together until we can both be sure that we are on that narrow way that leads to eternal life. Matthew chapter 7, later on in this chapter, in verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Brother, then the sad truth is that Jesus says there are going to be many people who call him Lord, who think they're in a right relationship with him, who are going to be eternally disappointed. I don't want that to be me, and I don't want that to be you. That's why talking about these things is important. That's why honest evaluation is important. That we understand the message of salvation. That we understand God's grace. And how we can be cleansed of our sins through the power of Jesus' blood. How can we know we are on that narrow way? Well, here it says, He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. I need to know the will of God. How am I going to know the will of God? Well, I'm going to have to go to the scriptures where he has revealed that will to me. And the Bible is designed for self-examination. In James chapter 1, how, how does James describe the Bible? Does he describe it as a, as a telescope that, uh, they didn't even have those then, but if they did, uh, you know, does he describe it as a, a telescope that, you know, we, we can look out into all the expanses of the universe and, and explore questions of, of uh, philosophy and, well, no, that's not how he describes it. Does he describe it as, as some magnifying glass or some microscope that we can uh, examine other people's lives and stand in judgment over them? Certainly not. He describes God's word as a mirror. That first and foremost, God's word is to be used to examine my life my heart, my relationship with God. And so an encouraging, honest evaluation, the, the one that we're talking to shouldn't feel that we're over here with the magnifying glass, you know, looking all over them and saying, well, I see this and I see that. Now, what we're doing is we're taking the mirror of God's word and saying, I care about you. Will you please look at this? Will you please examine these things? We want to help them see for themselves what God's word says so that they might have a hope of eternity in God's presence. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Paul encourages the brethren there, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Each and every one of us needs to take this approach to Scripture on a, on a daily basis. Even if we already have responded to the gospel, we, we need to continue to evaluate our own relationship with the Lord. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. And as we reflect that type of self-examination, we want to, to share that and encourage that in others around us. And so when discussing the Scriptures, we need to make sure that we make it personal. You know, when discussing the scriptures, we're not just discussing, well, the, these lofty matters of, of religion and this church and that church. Now, when we're discussing the scriptures, we're discussing me and we're discussing you. And we're discussing our relationship with the Lord. We're discussing our uh, eternal hope of something beyond this life. We need to make sure that as we discuss these spiritual things, that is the focus, that we're encouraging personal application both for us 
and for those that we are seeking to help and love. But finally, we need never to resign to rejection. You know, some of you may have even lived with loved ones for 20, 30 years or more who have refused to listen to the gospel. Maybe at times it's caused tension in your relationship with them. And because you don't want to rock the boat, you don't want to sever that relationship, maybe at times you have, in a desire to keep peace, dropped the subject entirely. But as long as we have breath, brethren, we need not to give up on the eternal souls of the people around us. Because my mother didn't give up, I have a hope of seeing my grandmother in heaven with the Lord for all eternity. I want to ask you if, if you're not needing to watch over a, a child or, or a service dog to close your eyes with me for a moment. I want you to envision something with me. I want you to picture your loved ones, whether it be your, your parent, your child, your spouse, your sibling. Picture them on a river boat and you're standing on the bank. And they're having a great time on this boat. But you notice that the current is starting to pick up. And to your horror, you realize that they are heading for a steep waterfall. You yell at the top of your lungs to get their attention and draw them to the shore before it's too late. But they're having too much of a good time on this boat to be distracted by your screens. You start running along the bank, waving your hands. They glance over and see you for a moment, but they just think you're making a big deal about nothing and they go back to what they're doing. You throw out a life preserver for them, beg them to jump so you can pull them safely to shore, but they don't want to leave their party and get their clothes all wet. What would you do? Would you give up? Would you sit down on the bank, throw up your hands, and let them careen over the falls to their death? Or would you continue to strive to your very last breath that they might be saved. You can open your eyes. Brethren, Jesus didn't resign to our rejection. He reached out to us to his very last breath. In Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus is driven to tears over his people. He says in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood over her wings, and you would not have it. Think about God's people. In the Old Covenant, think about Israel. How many times did Israel reject God? Think about from the very beginning when God formed his nation, taking them out of bondage in Egypt, leading them into the wilderness. What did they do? They built the golden calf. Time after time they complained. They turned their back on God. God brings judgment. They go into the land. Finally, God brings them into the promised land in the days of Joshua. And then the days of Judges, what is the condition of the children of Israel? Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. They're continuing to reject the Lord. God brings them kings in. And in the time period of the kings, how is Israel's relationship with God? Time and time again, we have evil kings leading them away from the Lord. 
And so God takes them into captivity. And after a time, he brings them back out. And he brings them back into the land. And at the end of the book of Nehemiah, what do we see? They've rejected the Lord again. They're going back. Their ways of sin. What does God do? Does God say, fine, I've had enough of you? God sends his own son to die on a cross so that they can be saved. So that we can be saved. So that the world, every single one of us who have turned our backs on God, who have refused to fulfill our purpose, who have broken his image within us, could be saved. And Jesus, to his dying breath, was begging for our salvation. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It didn't matter how many times we rejected the Lord. God continued to reach out, even to the point of sending his own son to shed his precious blood on the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could have a hope, a fellowship with him for all eternity. Brethren, we must not give up until God gives up. 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 9, the passage that we read at the beginning. In verse 9, it said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What is Peter talking about here? Peter's talking about the day of judgment. He's talking about the day of the Lord to come. And people were saying, well, you know, you say Jesus is coming again. You say the Lord's going to come in judgment. Where is he? Why hasn't it come? What Peter is saying is it's not that God has forgotten or, or that he's not faithful concerning his promises. The reason that Jesus hasn't come again, Peter says, is because God is patient, wanting you to be saved. Brethren, the sun rose this morning because God still wants somebody to be saved. That is the reason we are here on earth. That is the reason Jesus hasn't come again, because he still wants somebody to be saved. And as long as God is reaching out, we need to be reaching out. That love that we talked about needs to drive us. Drive us to our very last breath to reach out to those around us. That they might find the way of salvation provided by God's grace and have a hope of eternity in his presence. How does the message apply to you today? As you set down the mirror of God's word, what do you see? How will you apply it? As you leave this building today, will, will we forget about these things? Or are we going to allow them to motivate us to do everything within our power to spread the message of salvation to those whom we love, to those whom God loves and the world around us. Maybe you recognize today that in that illustration, you're not the one standing on the bank. You're the one riding on that boat. Brethren, we, we talked about last week, it's not about the journey. It is about the destination. Heaven is the most important thing that we have to deal with in this life. This life is fleeting. It is but a vapor, James says. There's one thing for certain. We, we don't know what's going to happen in everybody's life here. You, you don't know what the future holds, but one thing is certain. Every single person in this room 
is going to die. Every single person in this room is going to pass from this life. Do you think that's something that we need to consider? If heaven is the most important thing that we have to deal with in this life, then what is the condition of your soul? Have you responded to God's grace? God has cast out his life preserver, and it costs him the blood of his son. He wants you to be saved. He wants fellowship with you. He wants you to be his child. He wants to free you from all suffering and all sorrow and all pain and all death. He wants you to be in his presence for all eternity. Will you respond to that invitation? Will you respond to the deliverance that he is offering you? If you recognize today that there's some change that you need to make, if you need to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, you can bury the old man of sin in baptism. By God's grace, by the power of the resurrection, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. Do you need to make that commitment today? If there's anything that we can do, do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, that's why we're here. We're about to, to sing a song, and as we sing that song, if there is some need that you need to make known, some change that you need to make in a public way, we ask that you'll come to the aisle and let me know as we sing.